0: open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The name of the series is Living Life Against the Flow. And uh, (laughs) there's no paragraph more against the flow of our culture than the one we're about to read. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Abigail Van Buren has for years written in syndicated columns around America answers to questions that people have about the American life. Dear Abby was her column. Uh, in one Dear Abby column, a man wrote to her and said, Dear Abby, I am in love and I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. So she wrote back. It's classic. Dear sir, the only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. (laughs) I guess that's way... Her way of saying, you dog. (laughs) I've officiated at a lot of weddings in the last 23 years, and a few of them stand out. A couple of them that stand out, and thank God these are becoming more frequent, but foreign to our culture is the last couple of weddings that I remember standing up and facing a couple who told me they had never kissed and when I pronounce them husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. That would be the first time they would kiss each other. Now, I announced that to the wedding audience. And it was like the air was sucked out of the room. <laughs> like, you're kidding. Are they from Mars or something? It was so foreign and alien to this culture. Hollywood has lied to us. They have made immorality, sensuality, sexuality glamorous, but they hide the poison behind it. They say, oh, come on, get with it. Even sexuality, as long as it's safe sex you practice. i got to tell you, when you remove sex out of the parameters for which God placed it in, it's not safe any longer, it's dangerous. It can shatter people relationally. It can alienate people spiritually. And it can actually harm them or kill them physically. Understand something as we delve into these verses this morning. Sexuality is God-given. He created the impulse and gave it to man. God is pro-sex. It was God's idea. But that which is God-given must be God-governed or it is dangerous. Sort of like fire in a fireplace. Fire's great. It warms. It adds a glow to the room. It adds atmosphere. You can cook with it, but take it out of the fireplace and it can destroy when it's out of control. It must be kept under control. I've even had people say, Well, the Bible's so negative when it comes to its command about sexuality. Oh, really? Negative? What if you saw a sign on a door that said, danger, keep out? Some of you might go, why should I? That's such a negative command, keep out. I'm curious. I want to know what's behind that door. Ah, but keep reading further. You see, it says, danger, keep out, explosives. Now you have a positive reason for the seemingly negative command. It's a positive, not a negative. It's to keep you from being blown up. So when the Bible gives commands about things like this, understand God has your best interests at heart. Just because something is widespread and generally accepted doesn't make it right. Just because drugs are widely used. Just because everybody speeds, goes over the speed limit. Just because divorce is the new normal. And just because sexual immorality is... Pervasive doesn't mean it's right. Now, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We've been covering it rather carefully over the past several weeks, months, three and a half, four months. And um, don't you suppose that when Jesus got to this part of the Sermon on the Mount that the men in the crowd started fidgeting just a bit? Maybe it felt uncomfortable like looking at their watch, like, are you done yet? I hope this is over soon. This is very uncomfortable material, but keep in mind that what Jesus is doing is once again peeling off that veneer of external religion. Back to verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so beginning with hatred or anger, he says it's more than just killing people. It's about hating them. It's more than just committing the act of adultery. It's about the root of it, which is lust. So he is peeling away the outward and getting down to the heart. As we go through our text this morning, and we begin in verse 27. A few things I want you to notice with me. And number one, that this, this problem is an age-old problem. For he begins in the paragraph, You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not commit adultery. Jesus spoke these words about 2,000 years ago, and he was referring to a problem or an issue that even went further back than that, to those of old. The problem of adultery is as old as mankind is. It was especially a problem in the pagan world. Now picture the children of Israel. They're living in this land God promised them. But all around them are people practicing an odd form of worship that combined a worship of a god with sexuality. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, worshipped a god known as Baal, or Baal, if you want to be technical in its pronunciation. And the female counterpart of this male deity was Ashtoreth. They were practiced often on tops of hills in groves of trees. It was a very sexual form of worship where... uh, A man and a woman would come together physically and a prayer would be uttered, something like, even as fertility is going on right now, I pray that my crops will be fertile, my cattle and herds will be fertile, and all my family will be blessed. Now later on, this trickled down even into the Greek culture to where there were temples. For instance, in Corinth, the temple to Aphrodite housed a thousand priestesses. They were prostitutes. They went down into the city and for profit to keep the temple going, they sold their bodies to the men of the city and people from all over the world would come. And there was even a saying that went about, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth because these gals were soliciting funds for the temple. However, mostly in the Greek culture, Sex was purely biological. It had no moral attachment to it. It was a bodily need, just like eating, drinking, breathing, sleeping. There was sex. In fact, the Greeks even created their own word to describe physical love, eros, they called it. We have the term erotic Hollywood. That's a buzzword there. It comes from the Greek term eros. Interesting, if you look through the Bible in the Greek language, you never find the word eros one time. It's a word confined to the pagan world because the word eros in its root means to grasp. And the idea is that I'm going to grab a hold of something in order to satisfy myself. And it describes physical love. Eros love is truly self-love. Now, a lot of times a guy will say to a girl, Oh, if you really love me, you'll do it with me. Or I really, really love you. No. Let me translate that. He's saying, I love me and I want you. That's eros love. Now, the law of Moses in the Old Testament forbade adultery. And Jesus is no doubt referring to the seventh commandment when he says... You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. When God created life on the earth, the first thing God did was institute marriage. After man and woman were on the earth, he brought them together. And Adam saw Eve and said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I know it doesn't sound romantic, the first words out of the guy's mouth when he sees the gal, to say, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But it really was romantic. There is uh, something in the original language that is missing in the English translations that speaks of a real joy and anticipation and emotion. You might translate it, wow. This is it. This is the counterpart that God promised to fulfill me. So God created man and woman on the earth. Then God instituted marriage. And then God brought in a law, the law of Moses, to protect life and to protect marriage. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That's to protect life in general. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. That was built around the institution of marriage to protect that. Because adultery ruins marriage. There was a ten-year-old boy who just came out of Sunday school class and the lesson that morning was on the Ten Commandments. He didn't get all the terms right. So he said to his daddy, Dad, what does it mean when the Bible says thou shalt not commit agriculture? And his dad, knowing what had happened, said, Son, it means you're not to plow in another man's field. (laughs) And given the context of the wording, he was right. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. Now, from what you know of the Old Testament, what was the punishment for adultery? Stoning. They took the guy gal outside the city gates, and they stoned them to death. Now, can you imagine, just imagine if that law were in play today? The landscape of the United States would look very different, don't you think? (laughs) There'd be rock piles everywhere. So this age-old problem of sexual promiscuity isn't something that has gone away. It's very fashionable these days. Malcolm Muggeridge said that sex is the substitute religion of the 20th century. A USA Today poll said a third of the men and women that they polled, that is about 39% of men, 27% of women, a third admit an extramarital affair. So in their poll, about 30% of the American public has had an affair. You say, well, that's not really any new news. We've known about that for a long time. What you may not know is the research done by another independent pollster said today, quote, the majority of Americans, 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs they're having. Now, I wish I could tell you that that's a problem outside the church of Christ, outside the kingdom of God, that that's way out there, that's the world But after 23 years of pastoring, after what I've seen, it ain't so. It's a problem within the Christian community. Time magazine did some research. Among those who label themselves Christian, very religious, they said, 31% have had an affair. That's the national average. Christianity Today polled 1,000 people at random, 23% admitted to committing adultery, and 45% they said they acted inappropriately. Now, parents, you have teenagers, understand the number one crisis point, you might say, or the number one problem that a teenager today will say that they face is sexual purity. It's a huge problem, huge issue. So it's an age-old problem. Now, let's get a little bit deeper and go into the next verse. We see that it's not just an age-old problem. Jesus gets into the heart. It's an internal problem. For he says, But I say to you, verse 28, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's clear up what that means. The word to look is a present participle. It simply means... It denotes a continual process, not a, an involuntary glance, but more of a steady gaze. It's not the first look. It's the double take where the problem lies. And then it says, whoever looks to lust. Uh, the wording in the original language is epithumesai Literally, whoever looks toward lusting as a goal. Whoever looks toward lusting as a goal, my goal is that I might be satisfied sensually by what I look at. He's not talking about temptation. Everybody gets tempted. That's unavoidable. That's pervasive. That's common. It's the lingering. It's what you do with what you see. Case in point, David. You know the story. David the king was taking a walk one night on his rooftop and you have to imagine Jerusalem as slanted and you have layers of houses and buildings so that from David's point of view, you could see everything. And as he walks out, he notices that below him or perhaps on the other side of that little ravine in Jerusalem was a woman named Bathsheba who was bathing on her rooftop. What David saw, he couldn't help. But what he continued to see, he could help. David could have said, not good. And walked away, but he didn't do it. He could have said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go watch the Lakers game. (laughs) But what he did is he gazed. He continued to look upon her and he thought, I'm the king. I have power. I can, because I have the power, fulfill what I see and what I want. And that's where the sin began. It began with what not only what he saw, but what his mind fantasized with. There are so-called sex experts out there, I think of Dr. Ruth, heard of Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who will say things like, there's nothing wrong with fantasies, because fantasies are only in some mind. And as long as you keep it in some mind, it's okay. That's idiotic. The problem begins in the mind. That's where all of the, the issues, the battle is fought in the thought life. That's why Job said, "I have made a covenant with my eyes that I would not gaze upon a young maiden." A wise taxicab driver once said, "He who looketh upon a woman loseth offender." <laughs> but you lose more than offender. You could lose a family. You could lose your integrity." you could lose a lot more. Dr. Victor Klein University of Ohio of Utah said the studies show pornography is progressive and addictive for many. It can lead to the user acting out his fantasy often on children. Why? Because children are weaker, vulnerable and easier to control for some of these folks. Now you take that back to its origin. And I bet you've heard this saying, and it happens to be true, especially here. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. So Jesus takes it all the way back from the age-old outward problem down into the heart where we start sowing thoughts and dealing with them at that level. You know, I've even had... Some fellas try to excuse the way they look at women by saying things like, I'm just admiring God's creation. And I said to him, I never see you looking at a tree quite the same way. That's God's creation also. Now, Jesus in this passage is clearly speaking to men. It's obvious when he says, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, why does he do that? Simply because men are usually the ones with the problem of visual stimulation. But can we just for a moment flip the coin and look at the other side of it? If there weren't Bathshebas out there bathing on the rooftop, it would sure help men a lot. Women can dress in certain ways as to invite and incite the temptation in a man. Arthur W. Pink wrote, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of a great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. It is an age-old problem, but it is an internal problem. Third thing I want you to notice, it's a conquerable problem. It's a conquerable problem. And Jesus will show us how. This is the shocking part. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, we read that and we go, that's gross. That's horrible. That's the intended effect. Because that's exactly how we ought to look upon sin and what it does to God. That's gross. That's the intended effect. It's meant to be shocking. Question. What exactly did Jesus mean by that? When he talks about gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand. That's been the subject of debate actually. In the early church or post early post apostolic church. One of the early church fathers named Origen, based on this verse of Scripture, had himself castrated so as to avoid temptation or to avoid what he would do with temptation. However, I have to safely say that's not what Jesus meant because that would contradict every single thing he has said up to this point. If the problem is in the heart, what good does it do gouging out one eye? you still got another eye left. You might not lust in stereo anymore, but you can still lust with one eye. And so you cut off one hand. You still have another hand with which to do evil. So what does he mean? Understand that the right hand or the right eye, according to Jewish thinking, meant the very best. The best strength. Sorry, left-handies. Uh, maybe they were a bit prejudiced against left-handed people, but they the right hand represents the very best, the place of honor, authority, or the very best, and the right eye represents the best vision. Here's the point. Deal radically with sin. Be willing to give up whatever is necessary. Whatever, he says, causes you to sin. The word scandalon referred to a bait stick in a trap, and when an animal would hit against that bait stick, it would not only lure the animal in but trap the animal because of it. Anything that morally traps us should be eliminated quickly and radically. Anything that morally traps us should be eliminated quickly and radically. I love what Martin Luther used to say. He said, you you may not be able to stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. So get rid of entrapments. Simply speaking, for men, it might mean that when you go into a grocery store, you don't even walk near the magazine rack. Oh, I can handle it. Watch. No, if it's a problem, stay away. It means don't tune into certain movies, certain television programs, or be around certain friends. It may mean that if you're married and you find yourself emotionally attached to somebody else, you sever that relationship immediately. You might say, well, I don't know if I can do that. You see, I work with that person, sever it immediately. Well, it would be impolite, and I'd be a bad witness. Sever it immediately. Think of Joseph. Remember, he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Talk about a temptation. She just walked right up to him and grabbed him by the collar and said, let's have sex. And what did he do? He turned around and ran out. He didn't say, well, that would be impolite. I just don't want to run. I should say something to her. It would be a bad witness if I just ran. It would be a worse witness if you stayed and did what she asked. Sever it immediately. I got a letter from a gal in our uh, previous church. At least she attended there uh, for some time. I don't even know exactly who she was, but I got a letter one day in my office that was very unusual. She said, uh, Pastor Skip, um, every time you speak, I have lustful thoughts towards you. And then she left her phone number and said, you got to talk to me. i got to pray through this with me, and I need to overcome it. So I decided I needed to deal with it radically. First thing I did is call my wife, told her about it. Second thing I did is give it to my secretary and said, You call this gal. And the third thing I did is got all my assistant pastors in and read to them and told them all about it. I wanted to be covered in that area. I wanted to deal with that right away. Don't be the devil's dartboard. The Bible says flee temptation. Flee. Run away from it. Unfortunately, a lot of people flee temptation, but they give the devil their forwarding address. You know what I mean? (laughs) No, devil. But you know what? Later on, here's my card. You can give me a buzz. We'll talk about it. Don't be his dartboard. Flee. Let me close by giving you, I think, some helpful tips for prevention of this adultery temptation. One is a negative tip. One is a positive one. Tip number one, and I'll explain. Consider the damage that adultery will do. Consider the damage. Let's just take a few moments and think through what an affair, what an adulterous affair can do. What kind of damage? Number one, it can damage you physically. It has a potential through sexually transmitted diseases. There's even commercials out there almost glorifying them. And that can stay with you for life and even cause death. So it can damage you physically. Number two, it can damage you emotionally. The anxiety, the guilt that you will experience because of it. Unfortunately, people, when they get into this uh, area of their lives, they rationalize and here's their thoughts. Well, I'm in this marriage but I'm having this affair, so what I'm going to do is dump my spouse and marry this other person, and everything's going to be great. I know it will. No, because now you have a new relationship built on deception. That's what an affair is. It's built on deception so that the chances of failure are greater for this second relationship, even more so than they were for the first. It can damage you emotionally. Number three, it can damage you spiritually. You lose peace. You lose fellowship with God. Number four, it can damage your family. Everything that you have built up, if you have indeed built up a strong marriage relationship with a wife, a husband, with children, can be quickly eroded. Ask David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and saw that then played out for years in his own family life. When he had a son named Amnon rape his half-sister Tamar, and then Absalom go and kill him in revenge. And all of those years of pain because of David's sin. Number five, it can damage others. The church is weakened by it. Unbelievers are prevented from coming to Christ by it. Unbelievers say, why should I come to Christ when people in the church aren't any different than people in the world? Number six, and this is, I would say, the most important. It should be number one on our list. It can hurt the heart of God. Why is it that in an affair, God is usually the last one considered? If he were the first one considered, it might prevent it totally. You know, one thing a carpenter learns when he uh, is a carpenter, he learns how to drive nails. And he learns a principle. Whatever you aim at, you hit So when you hold the nail, you never look at your thumb. I tried that once. (laughs) Because you won't hit the head of the nail. You'll hit whatever you're looking at. If you're looking at your thumb, you'll hit your thumb. If you're looking at the head of the nail, you'll hit the head of the nail. If you live life and experience relationship by looking at Jesus and making sure he's the center of everything, bullseye. So consider the damage. The second tip is more positive. Cultivate the decision of marriage. Cultivate the decision. You made a decision if you're married. Uh, You you made a vow. You stood before a preacher, probably, at some church, and you said, uh, I'll have you as my lawfully wedded wife or husband, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Knowing the decision that you've made, cultivate that decision. How do you cultivate it? It's as simple as dating your spouse. It's as simple as carved-out time that is quality time that is communicative time. Jim Dobson says, you can usually go into a restaurant and figure out who's married. Watch the couples that are sitting with each other and not saying a word. They learn how to not communicate with each other meaningfully over time. You've got to break that. Kids are away. It's you and your spouse. Quality time. I'll give you a couple of ideas that you could do. You might think they're corny or a little bit uh, hokey. Reaffirm the vows that you said to each other. That is, look into each other's eyes and try to remember as much as you can of the vows I just shared, better, worse, richer, for poorer, sickness, and in health, till death do us part. Say that again to each other. Another tip, write a letter to each other expressing the emotions that you felt on your wedding day. You say, Well, it's so long ago. Let's see, six months. Try to think back to how you felt and communicate that in a letter to your spouse of, this is what I felt like, I want to get in touch with that again. So cultivate the decision of marriage by dating your mate, and second, by satisfying each other's desires, emotionally and physically. Satisfying each other's physical and emotional needs. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we are. We're dealing with an age-old problem that is really an internal problem, but that is a conquerable problem. And we do so by considering the damage it can do From the damage it does in our relationship with God to all of the people in our lives that are meaningful to us, and even the church. And then we are proactive by taking the relationship that we have of marriage and building upon it and cultivating it. And you might say unwrapping the person that we married into the beautiful flower that they are. I'm going to read something as I close. This is by a theologian named Helmut Thielicke. You've probably never heard of him. Maybe you have if you're theologically read. But he wrote something about this that's excellent. I once knew, he said, a very old married couple who radiated a tremendous happiness, the wife especially who was almost unable to move because of old age and illness and in whose kind old face the joys and sufferings of many tears had etched a hundred lines, was filled with such a gratitude for life that I was touched to the quick. Involuntarily, I asked myself, what could possibly be the source of this kindly person's radiance? In every other respect, they were common people, and their room indicated only the most modest of comfort. But suddenly I knew where it all came from, for I saw in those two they were speaking together and their eyes hanging upon each other. All at once it became clear to me that this woman was dearly loved. It was not because she was a cheerful and pleasant person that she was loved by her husband all those years. It was the other way around. Because she was so loved, she became the person that I saw before me. She became the person that I saw before me. Abigail Van Buren was right. The only difference between humans and animals is morality. Why live like an animal when you can live like a child of God? You know, ultimately, the issue of adultery among Christians can be boiled down to one issue. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. Who do you worship? Who do you really love? Who's your master? It's easy to say, oh, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my master. But to continue on in a lifestyle of disobedience to him and say, Jesus is my Lord, I would say, at what point does the Lord business kick in? At what point does he really become Lord? That is the boss. He calls the shots. He governs your behavior and your thought patterns. That's Lord. And that's what we're called to worship him and follow him as. In obedience. That's where the fulfillment comes in. Fulfillment comes in. Fulfillment comes in. in.